Well, good morning, church. How are we doing today? Good. Well, that, was a, that was like a good with a question mark. Uh, would y'all please open up your Bibles and meet me in Acts chapter 22, verses 12 through 35 will be our primary text. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. Grateful to be with you. And if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll make sure that you get a Bible. And if you're new and growing in familiarity with the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first books of the New Testament, and then comes Acts if you, on the right side of the Bible. If you get to Romans or 1st, 2nd Corinthians, go back to the left. Are there any kiddos in the house today? Any kids? Can y'all say amen, kids? Kids, can I hear you? Amen? One, two, three, Amen? All right, now turn to your parents and teach them how to speak in church, how to speak back amen to the preacher. Uh, sometimes the rocks cry out and sometimes it's my three-year-old. Uh, this is a great opportunity for us and parents want to encourage you when our children's ministry uh, is not open, our children's ministry heart ought to still be. And so what that means is that if you need to stand up in one of the aisles, if you need to rock your baby to sleep uh, on the outside, totally cool. If you need to take them out and really have a come to Jesus moment, quote scripture to them and then bring them back in, it is a safe place and I assure you in my house we have done that a couple of times already today. Um, And if you're not a parent, this is an opportunity to know what it means that as a church, each individual may not have children, but we collectively as a church all have children. We all have kids that we care for and want to see come to know, love, and follow Jesus. And so with that being said, let's be encouraged today that Jesus not only says, "Let, let the little children come, but he's entrusted many of them to our care. And so we want them to see and hear songs sung about Jesus, the word of God preached over them, um, and mom and dad pray, those who take care of them, to be humble before God. This is one of those great opportunities to be a church family. Pastor Rankin Wilborn in his uh, book, Union with Christ, writes about a 20th century uh, English theologian named T.F. Torrance. And during the Second World War, Torrance served as a chaplain. And when he was on the battlefield one day, when the uh, fighting was particularly acute in an area, he came upon a young soldier who was fighting for his life. And here's their interaction as T.F. Torrance would later record. He says, as I knelt down and bent over him, he said, Padre, is God really like Jesus? I assured him, Torrance wrote, that he was the only God that there is, the God who has come to us in Jesus, shown his face to us, and poured out his love to us as our Savior. As I prayed and commended him to the Lord Jesus, he passed away. This young soldier in the middle, on the edge of his death, wanted reassurance. He wanted reassurance to not just know who God was, but to sense that God was present, even in the most evil realities, death and war, even in the midst of those incredibly troubling situations. He wanted to know, is God in this? Is God real in the midst of this? And the chaplain reassured him that Jesus is precisely the God who is visible, the one who draws close, the one who is present in these particular evil realities, the one who pours out himself in love. Wilborn writes about this particular story in a context or a chapter on abiding in Christ, of what it means to trust and to have faith. It's a, abiding is a confidence, a peaceableness in our relationship 
with Christ, an assuredness, particularly knowing that God cares for us and protects us. We will abide in Him who cares for us and protects us. And this young soldier facing his death looks for a type of cosmic care, if you will, that he trusts only Jesus can bring. This kind of trust and assurance is what Sabbath rest is all about, what it means to pause for a 24-hour period and remember who God is and, if you will, who He is not. See, to be freed from productivity, Sabbath is much less about what we do or what we don't do than it is about what or whom we acknowledge. Marva Dawn, in her fabulous book on keeping the Sabbath, called Keeping the Sabbath Holy, that's W-H-O-L-L-Y, ceasing, resting, embracing, and feasting is a great subtitle. She says this, a great benefit of Sabbath, of Sabbath keeping, is that we learn to let God take care of us. Not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives. Resting is abiding. Resting is meant to wield in us a deep assurance, a deep abiding of remembering this gutting reality that too often we spend most of our weeks acting, supposing as if we are divine and neglecting the one who truly is. Sabbath is meant for us to step away from the productivity, to step away from the work for just a moment so that we remember the work doesn't define us, that though there is work left to be done, we are freed from being defined by what we produce. Can I get an amen? That's good news because many of the things I produce, much of the work that I do is not good. And therefore, it's such good news to know that what I do is not who I am. That the work that I produce and the value that it has does not tell me who I am. There is someone else who tells me who I am. There is someone else who keeps my identity and my worth. Now, how might we fully understand what this soldier knew on this battlefield? How might we incorporate an important habit of Sabbath rest, which is a commandment, by the way, not a suggestion? I think we'll find a lot of help today in Acts. We'll find a lot of help in a jail cell. We'll find a lot of help in the Apostle Paul himself. But more than anything, we'll find help to understand how we have this assurance, how we have this God who takes care of us in Acts chapter 23 in the very nature of something called providence, the providence of God. So hear this, Acts chapter 23, verse 12 and following reads this way. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. They were more, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Verse 16, now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. 
The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. Verse 21, but, not, but do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to drink, or rather not, neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are read, already waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, verse 26, Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and deserving or desiring rather to know the charge for which they were accusing him. I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. 31, so the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipartus. Uh, and on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter, to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what prov province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we need your help today. Just like every day. It's like every moment. Help us to see with clarity the truth and beauty of your word that tells us about who you are. Encourage our souls today. Perhaps we're weary. Perhaps we're frustrated. Perhaps we're heavy with incredible burdens. Perhaps we're running from confession of sin. Perhaps we're here for the very first time in a context of worship and of hearing your word. And, and so I pray, Father, that today would even be the day of salvation, that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear your good, pleasing, perfect will and word. So God, honor yourself in this moment. Help me. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. And help us as we hear your word to be obedient. Help us to be eager to obey your word. And I pray, Father, that that's hard sometimes. Not just to do your word, to perform your will, but even to desire to do it sometimes does not come. So, Father, would you give us hearts for obedience today? Hearts for trust, hearts for faith, hearts for belief that we might become the people you're calling us to be. We know that you'll do it because that's, you're faithful to your word. You don't just start work, you complete it. So have your will, have your way today, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. If you remember, Paul still incarcerated in Jerusalem. 
He's preached this gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. And the thing that's creating so much tension in the ancient world is Paul is not telling Gentiles, non-Jews, that they have to take on the customs and religion of Judaism in order to truly be saved, in order to truly be part of the church, of the faith. And so this is getting a lot of religious, or those in religious power, very frustrated because they do believe that Gentiles, non-Jews, should start acting like Jews. So this is highly uh, ethnic. There's a lot of racism underneath the storyline of going on. Paul's ethnicity and his culture is constantly being debated along the way, and therefore it's leading to all kinds of cultural tension to the point that the religious authorities uh, respond to the, the, uh, the effects of the governing authorities, and they're at odds with one another. Paul is in jail because the uh, religious authorities could not find a way to kill him because the governing authorities stepped in. The governing authorities are like, there's no, nothing that he's done wrong. We can't prosecute him. In fact, he's a Roman citizen, so he needs to be on trial first. And so everybody is really frustrated, and here Paul is, still bleeding and bruised from the mob attack that he endured from the beatings he endured from the government. And here he is protected in some respects by Claudius, the the local governing authority. And we pick it up right there in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the Jews, which is this euphemism for the Pharisees and Sadducees, some of the governing, or rather the religious authorities, were growing incredibly impatient. Can, can, they, they're tired of Paul. Through, through mob force, they tried to kill him. They believed he was defiling the temple. He didn't do that. They tried to punish him through Roman law by accusing him of terrorism, but it didn't work. They tried to convict him of the moral law, believing that he blasphemed against God. It didn't work. Are you picking up on this theme that over and over again, those in power are trying to stick it to Paul and it's not working? See, God is more consistent and more powerful than whatever opposition we may face. Now, now I didn't hear all of you, so I want to say it again because that's really, really good news. See, God is more constant and more powerful than any opposition you could possibly face. This is the theme we're getting in chapter 21, 22, and now into chapter 23. God's faithfulness, God's provision is more persistent, more tenacious than what we face. Some of you are well acquainted with God's protection and deliverance. You tried to train wreck your life early on through lascivious living, drinking, sleeping around, rejecting accountability, and it didn't work. The evil one has tried to overwhelm you time and time again by telling you you're no more than your brokenness, but it didn't work. Family and friends regularly remind you of your shortcomings, of your shame, and of the evil inside of your heart, but it won't work. Are you picking up on a theme in your life? 
right? That over and over again, opposition may come internally in your environment, even in your family tree. And over and over and over again, God protects, God keeps, God delivers. God is more constant and more powerful than whatever opposition we face. I'd like to preach to you today on that idea. God's protection of God's people, God's care for God's people. It's what the late American theologian R.C. Sproul describes as the invisible hand. In his book by that very same title, he explains what previous generations, how they articulated, previous generations of Christians understood about God's providence. See, providence is simply this, God's rule over human affairs. God's rule over human affairs. Notice that it's not just his knowledge over human affairs. It's not just his observation of human affairs. It's his rule over them. He doesn't just see it. He doesn't just know about it. He rules over them. And so previous generations used to capitalize the letter P in providence, understanding that the providential care of God, the work of providence, was inextricably linked to his character. In other words, the care of God was God himself. They saw, R.C. Sproul says, a link between the activity of God and the very being of God was deeply rooted in the conviction of 19th century Christians that all that comes to pass occurs under the sovereign plan and rule of Almighty God. This, of course, is in direct violation of our modern mindset, isn't it? Of our modern... We believe everything can be explained by coincidence or science. Today, the invisible has been discarded for the visible. Or at the very least, it's been discarded for what we can describe a lot better, a lot more tactilely with our senses. See, what we see and explain through the senses is always more trusted than what remains in the realm of biblical or spiritual understanding. We get real nervous when we talk about the principalities, when we talk about the invisible realm, when we talk about the spiritual life of the believer, because we like to explain stuff. No, things worked out because I worked hard. No, that took place because of the weather patterns that we noticed in the hemisphere. That happened because people are bad. That happened because people are good. Yet here Paul sits. Despite all the odds, persecution, injustice, all of the variables, inextricably alive, inexplicably still there. He is unfathomably okay. He is shockingly at peace. And he is incredibly under the care of God. God's invisible care, hear this church, is in plain sight. God's invisible care is in plain sight. Though God has clearly cared for Paul to this point, it does seem to get increasingly bleak, though. I mean, how much do you have to hate a person to go, I'm not going to eat or drink until they're gone? Right? You might think that you have some enemies. Anybody ever made an oath? I'm literally not going to take nutrients. I'm not going to take an H2O. In other words, I'm going to set a clock on my own life if I can't take his life. Now, modern medical knowledge, or perhaps common knowledge for you, I had to research this. You can last about three days without water. You can go a couple of weeks without food. You can only go about three days without water today. It was likely much shorter in the first century. So they're essentially saying, 
we'll give you about 72, 24 to 72 hours before we're going to take you out. Our life is going to be a ticking time bomb. They put themselves on the clock and they essentially say, it's us or him. It's us or him. Side note, religion makes you do crazy things. Crazy things. This makes no sense. This, makes, this is not a good idea. This is not helpful. This is not encouraging. It is not edifying. Your spiritual gift is not to say, I'm going to stop eating until somebody dies. That's not okay. This is not what we do. Remember, all of this is happening because these religious elites would rather not believe in a God and a gospel that includes the Gentiles. That's what's underneath all of this. So they lay out their plot before the chief priests and the elders. We made an oath. Ask Paul to meet you. We're going to be hiding in the shadows. We're going to have camouflage on. We're going to be behind. How creepy is this, right? We're going to be hiding in an alleyway. Tell him to walk by. We'll take him out. And here's where God steps in. This is beautiful. Don't miss it. Look at verse 16. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, now, this might seem like a very innocuous detail, like it doesn't matter very much at all. But Paul's nephew just happens to be walking by. We didn't even know that Paul had a sister to this point. And here comes her offspring. We didn't even know that Paul had a nephew. Here he comes at just the moment that this plot is being unfolded. We don't know if he's somehow in the meeting. We know that he is young, so he's likely not participating. Perhaps he was helping bring refreshments or something to this meeting, or perhaps he's just walking by because these Jews are arrogant enough to speak out loud in what might they thought of be a closed situation. They start talking about all that they're going to do. We know very little about Paul's family. We know that he had a father because earlier in Acts, we found out that's how Paul got his citizenship was through his Dad, that's how he got his Roman citizenship. We knew nothing of a sister. We knew nothing of a nephew. And yet, at just the right time, at just the right moment, the exact right person, blood, family, overhears the menacing plans. Like when you were at the end of a particular season of work. Then you met that person who led you to a much more fruitful vocation. Right when you felt hopeless and isolated, perhaps even after bouts with depression and counseling, for some reason, the clouds just lifted. You, you knew you were in sin and needed to repent. And then a friend asked you just that right question with no knowledge of what was going on, called you to account, and you bared your soul in the light of Christ. When you were at your end with your children, school started again and all of heaven rejoices at just the right time. Am I preaching to you yet? Now, because we know so little about Paul's nephew, we are unsure if the way that he heard about this, but we do know he was just the right person because right away he goes to his uncle. See, in this Roman first century context, it would have been left to families to take care, to provide food and nourishment for their family members who were in prison. And so his nephew probably had the easiest access of anybody else. It was just the right person at just the right time with just the right information, with just the right amount of access to get to Paul. And here's what he says. Look at verse 17. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. 
as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. So Paul's nephew goes to the tribune, Claudius Lysias, and tells him everything. And here's how the tribune responds in verse 23. Then he called two centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of night, about 9 p.m. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Here's what the letter says. Claudius Lysias, to the, his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them, pay attention, with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. Verse 29, I found that they uh, that he, rather, was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving of death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me uh, that there would be a plot against him, I sent him to you at once, ordering his ac- accuser also to state before you what they have against him. This letter is actually comedy. This letter is incredibly funny. Remember, Claudius had no idea what was going on. What we learned in chapter 22 and on into 23 is this dude had no clue who Paul was. He thought he was an Egyptian terrorist. He had no idea where he was from. He had no idea what was going on. And this letter seems to be written in such a way where he's like, I had this whole thing figured out. He was a Roman citizen. We treated him totally well. The Jews were the bad guys. They were trying to make me do bad things, but I didn't. I remained faithful to Caesar and to Rome. I was incredible. It's a complete inflation of reality. Far be it for some governing official to completely inflate reality, serving themselves incredibly well. Certainly, it makes the tribune look like he knows what's going on and everybody else like they don't. Nevertheless, does not the letter serve as another example of God's incredible providential care? This is where his invisible care becomes incredibly clear. See, his care is is visible in that God is providentially providing protection by his invisible hand through very visible means, through the physical hands of the Roman Empire, if you will, through the pen and words of the governing authorities, not the least being Paul's nephew himself. See, God's invisible care is constantly being made visible and manifest. The question is, do you see it? God's invisible care is in plain sight. And to give us perhaps one of the most lucid pictures of this, I'd like to take us to 2 Kings chapter 6. So type in 2 Kings chapter 6 or turn far to the left to 2 Kings. It's right after 1 Kings. If you need a table of contents, it's all good. Table of contents is our friend, 2 Kings, far to the left. Now, what's going on here in Israel at the time of 2 Kings chapter 6 is that the nation is divided. You, you have two different kingdoms sort of 
um, developing and also at war with one another. And we constantly will see in the life of Elisha God's providential care for his life that sort of culminates, if you will, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15. What's taken place up to verse 15 is that Elisha has upset the king, the king of Syria. He's upset him because he continues to know what the king is trying to do and continues to thwart all of his plans to come against the kingdom of Israel. And so the king is like, who keeps talking? Who knows all of this stuff? And everybody's like, it wasn't me, it was Elisha, right? Go get Elisha, not Elijah. He takes his place, Elisha. Go get Elisha. And so they all, he sends this huge army out to get one guy. How terrified are feeble earthly powers of the power of God? They constantly are sending legions of warriors against a single prophet. Nice little footnote. I hope that encourages your soul this morning. Here's what it says, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 15. When the servant of the man of God, the man of God, euphemism for the prophet Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So this enemy army comes, and yet surrounding that army is the providential care of God. It's a picture of what a lot of Old Testament writers call Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts, that he has invisible armies surrounding every earthly army for the sake of protecting his people with his invisible hand. Now what takes place next is that the army is blinded. And then Elisha sort of says, hey, you're in the wrong city. Let me take you to your enemies in Samaria, and I'm going to open your eyes there where you could probably be killed. And yet he staves off their execution, gives them bread and water, gives them mercy, and sends them home. They have no trouble with Syria ever again. Now, here's the question. How did Elisha see that army? Because you might be like, oh, sweet, so the Lord has my boss surrounded. The Lord has all of my enemies surrounded. The Lord has my finances surrounded. Yes, but do you see it? The question is, how does he see? Now, the first answer is God's sovereignty. He allows him to see. But what through Elisha's life tuned his eyesight, focused his eyesight, that he might see an invisible army around a physical invisible one? Well, this was not the first time. See, Elisha's story starts back in chapter 4. Just let me take you down memory lane. Here's the story of Elisha. When a widow needed to pay off her late husband's debts and keep her sons from going into slavery, being sold into slavery, Elisha was used by God to miraculously provide enough oil to sell to pay off all of their debts. That's chapter 4. When a woman feared her family lineage would end because her husband was old and she had no sons, through Elisha, God miraculously provided a son also in chapter 4. When that son died, God raised that kid back to life through 
Elisha. When a stew became poisoned, God helped Elijah purify it. When a commander of the army had leprosy, God used Elisha to heal him. And the commander was actually in that story quite annoyed that he couldn't get healed in a river way closer to his house, that he had to come all the way down here. So the Lord miraculously gave Elisha patience with an annoying person. Lastly, when someone lost an axe in a river, an axe head, that's it. Nothing like not a special axe head, just lost an axe head. God helped Elisha find it. All of this took place before he saw the invisible army. Now, could have every instance of Elisha's ministry life been explained away as happenstance? Absolutely. We could have just said that the, that the widow actually just had more oil than she realized, that the other woman was just fortunate enough to have a son after she spoke with Elijah, that the boy was actually not dead, but he was asleep, that they were just lucky to find that axe head, perhaps by diligent search. But in, if every instance of invisible provision would have been explained away by happenstance, chance, and dumb luck, then when he was surrounded by the Syrian army, he would not have had the eyes to see the invisible power of God. God's invisible care is in plain sight. Now, you might say, well, what am I supposed to do? Just give God credit for everything, every detail of my life, for my clothes, for my food, for the weather? Yes. Yes, that's what you're supposed to do. It is impossible to give God too much credit. We think we're going to get a disease if we give God too much credit. Like, it's going to hurt us. Like, oh, that's too much. It's going to get to God's head. Nothing's going to get to his head because he deserves all of the glory, all of the praise, all of the honor. Too often, church, we explain away what we plainly see as anything but God's provision and protection for our needs. I wonder if we don't enjoy the invisible power of God more because we are too committed to explaining away His providence in more comfortable terms. I wonder if we don't see God's invisible care, His providential care, more clearly, more powerfully, more constantly because we are too committed explaining it away in more comfortable terms. See, this is what the doctrine of providence does for us. It protects us from going off into sin and disbelief. Theologian Louis Burkhoff, Louis Burkhoff describes God's providence this way, as the continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the Creator preserves all creatures in operative in, is operative in all that comes to pass in the world and directs all things to their appointed end. In other words... God knows everything. God knows the future. God brings everything to bear. God brings the future to bear. He knows everything, works in everything to bring about His good, pleasing, and perfect will. God knows everything. God always brings about His will, and God cares for us as creation. Jesus makes this incredibly clear in Matthew chapter 6. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, just hear this and let the beauty of our Savior's words wash over you. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. 
what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith, Therefore, church, hear this again, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows what that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God knows everything. God brings everything about. God cares for his creation. And so we can rest free from the troubles of tomorrow. See, Jesus understood the providence of God to be a safeguard against illogical worries and destructive fear. He was teaching that true humility is recognizing the invisible hand of God in everything, and true arrogance is to explain it away. God's invisible care is in plain sight. Alas, I think what we've done is we've taught ourselves to explain away, to translate everything as fortune, dumb luck, or somehow the result of personal aptitude of every problem to be something that we alone have to carry that's beyond redemption. Therefore, we worry about tomorrow every day, don't we? We worry about tomorrow every single day. Day. And I think the real sin, the chief underlying issue for the Jewish crowd scheming against Paul is that they did not trust God. And they didn't listen to Gamaliel's words back in Acts 5. Hear this back from Acts 5. This dude called this shot. So, he says, he's Jewish, speaking to his fellow Jews, those local authorities. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For, if this plan of, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Here's what the good teacher Gamaliel is saying. If zealous Jews were really trusting God, they would have just waited and saw what God was doing. Not made a vow and say, we're not going to eat until we kill Paul. In other words, they believed their power was found in their words and their wisdom, not in the words and wisdom of God. My brothers and sisters, I'd like to take just a minute to help us see how we do the exact same thing. See, we may not make oaths about fasting, but we certainly make foolish promises all the time. We don't trust God's word, we trust our own. And so regularly we take spiritual disciplines like going to church, reading our Bibles, and prayer. We put all of those and say, God, if I go to church this week, I will feel better, right? God, 
I promise to read my Bible every single day if I could get that promotion at work. God, if I pray for my children, will they stop acting a fool immediately? We take the spiritual disciplines, we offer them up to God, and we say, if we do this, will you do this? Each promise of spiritual activity is really a way of asking, or I think better, manipulating God to give us what we want. We are not bound to be the church together and to display His mercy and grace. We're not going to the Word because where else are we going to go? He has the words of eternal life. We're not praying because we have no other recourse in life or in death, but that our Heavenly Father cares for us. We're trying to put Him on the hook so He gives us what we want. We vow just the same. Now, we may not make schemes of murder. If you do, please see me after the service. We may not make schemes of murder, but we certainly make plans for our own success. In other words, we trust our wisdom and not God's. James makes this clear in the third chapter of his letter to the dispersed church when he talks about our propensity to say stuff like, tomorrow or today, I'm going to go here or there, spend a year, make some money. We set our schedules, we set our direction, we set our timing, we set our financial goals, and rarely do we consider God in our everyday and long-term plans. In fact, what we do is we put all of our life together and go, you're good with this, right? Because this seems pretty good to me. Instead of just saying, what do you want? Here here I am. I trust you. I trust that you're going to give me the plans. You are going to write the script. You're going to tell me where to go. Always reveals our ambition. Always leads to jealousy and not contentedness and joy. See, below our vows and below these schemes is sin. And the sin is that we do not trust God. We don't trust his word. We don't trust his wisdom. We trust what we say. We trust what we think. And I think underneath that lack of trust, please hear this, brothers, sisters, I don't think we believe that God really cares for us. We don't truly believe that God cares for us and loves us. In fact, we go, well, that's so fundamental. That's like freshman year of Christianity. You learn that. But you never move on from it. That's constantly before us. This is why Jesus saying, are you not more precious than these, than flowers and birds? If he cares for them, won't he care for you? Many of us get so worked up in our performance that we forget that God loves us. Hard stop, period, right? He's not waiting for you to impress him. You can't impress him. There is nothing you can do to make him love you any more than he does by his grace. So my brothers, my sisters, please just hear this. God loves you. Don't reject that and go, oh, it's too warm and fuzzy. Stop. I need to hear that just as much as anybody else. Nobody is too big and bold to hear the love of God. You need to know that God loves you. Stop running. God loves you. Stop listening to your own voice. God loves you. Stop trusting in your own wisdom. God loves you. Stop setting your own schedule. God loves you. Stop making your own plans. God loves you. Stop scheming and dreaming on your own. God loves you. Stop making vows that he never told you to make. God loves you. And he displays this love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were dead in our trespasses in sin, Ephesians 2 tells us. We weren't about to get up and impress him. We were dead. And in the original language, do you know what that word dead means? Dead. It means that you're dead and you can't do anything. 
You're not impressive. You're not worthy. You're not amazing. You're not incredible. Millennials hear this. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And it's right then that in his providence, God chose to love you. In your brokenness, God loved us. When we were sinners, God loved us. While we were making religious vows, God loved us. When we were making fearful plans, God loved us. When we were sitting in seats of judgment, God loved us. While we were hustling for our holiness, God loved us. While we were running from him. God loved us while we were doubting his love. God loved us while we were acting like we didn't need his love. God loved us. The ultimate display of God's care and love for you is staring back at you from the cross. In our sinfulness, in our disbelief, behold the Son of God on the cross stretched out for your good and for mine. This is where the story of Jesus and Paul separate. See, over and over again, we've been comparing Paul's journey and Jesus' journey. Here's where it's incredibly distinct. Where yet again we see God provide and care for Paul a safe route of passage, we realize that Jesus did not receive that protection on the cross. The providential God withheld his invisible hand when he could have stayed off the execution of his son in any way that he desired to. And it is precisely because Jesus was not cared for and protected from the elements of sin that you and I, by his grace and love, now can be. And dying on the cross and rising from the dead, Jesus becomes our eternal caretaker, knowing all of your needs. In other words, the invisible hand of God is made most visible in Jesus Christ. God's providential protection for us beyond death and the grave because resurrection, in resurrection, Jesus dismantles the power of sin's lasting grip and effect on the human heart. He releases us from the burden of whatever binds us up in worry, anxiety, fear, and oppression. Even if our life is taken, the providential care of God goes further still because he defeated Satan, sin, and death. Therefore, in life, we can trust and hide in his word. Therefore, in life, we can trust and hide in his plans because he cares for us, because he loves us. God proves his utter care and providential power for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross, he provides forgiveness, life, assurance, reconciliation, and power On the cross, he protects us from shame, guilt, death, Satan, and despair. On the cross, you are cared for in all of your needs, in all that you need. Do you notice how large this team is? (laughs) Do you see that? There's 40 people, 40 mugs. You're like, we're not going to eat. We're going to go kill Paul. The response of... uh, Claudius is 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. This dude is strapped to the nines, like ready. for. They're, you know, how hungry are these guys going to be? They're going to be so hungry chasing this dude down. And he has 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 20 spearmen, ready to go a 35-mile journey. See, God doesn't just give you enough. Am I preaching to you yet? He gives you well beyond deserving, well beyond what you need. So the soldiers, all of them, verse 31, 
according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. It's like, we had too many guys. Y'all go home. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. The governor checks, makes sure that Paul is in his jurisdiction. And Felix, this, this governor who now is going to be caring and presiding over Paul, is not a nice dude. Felix practiced, uh, one historian said, every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instruction or rather instincts of a slave. See, Felix was not part of the Roman aristocracy. Felix was a slave made into a governor. And so his story and his action is an embarrassment to the religious authorities of Judaism. Because if a former slave turned governor acts with justice, prudence, and protection, what does that say about their religion? That they are unable to practice such things. But for us, in this introduction of Felix, is another point of God's sovereign care, who is willing and able to use the most unlikely of crooked sticks to draw another straight line. God's invisible care is made plain, is in plain sight. See, Paul is guarded. Yes, he's guarded by Roman soldiers, by a Roman governor, but he is protected. He is safe. In Christ, we too are always guarded. It doesn't mean that we will be free from harm. It does not mean that we will not suffer. It does not mean that we will not feel vulnerable. It means that all we ever will need will be found and provided for us in Christ. It means that in that difficulty, God will be present. The way the Apostle Paul puts this in Colossians 3.3 is this, your life is hidden with Christ. That means no matter what happens, his invisible care will always be in plain sight for those who have eyes to see. That's on the battlefield, and it's also on your day off. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. I am regretfully one of those whom Jesus spoke about, O oh, you of little faith. Forgive me, Father, for only believing what I can explain under my own power, for redirecting praise and glory back to my own power, my own will, back to even things like luck and happenstance. Forgive me, God. Forgive us for a church that explains away your power is a church that will soon not know it. And so help us, God. Help us to taste and see that you are good. Help us to see the invisible care of our God in plain sight. Help us to know that in Christ our life is hidden. Help us to know that you are a God who providentially cares for us in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.